Hello, I'm Helen Daly. Welcome to Build It, Thou Come. Not really an entrepreneur. What I am is somebody that has gone through a number of doors that have opened at different times and had to adapt. When management consultant and business advisor Ralph Evans became an entrepreneur, he didn't really think of himself in that way. With three other partners, George Pappas, Colin Carter and Maury Coop, he co-founded boutique consultancy firm Pappas, Carter, Evans and Coop back in the late 1970s. Yet Evans saw it less as an entrepreneurial venture and more as, here was a door opening, let's walk right through it. The young partners not only backed themselves, but they took on global heavyweights like McKinsey's and rapidly built their startup into a substantial player. They proved master business strategists, applying analysis and advice across private enterprise as well as government and industry bodies, helping them navigate through turbulent change in the Australian business landscape right through the 1980s, when manufacturing and tariff-protected industries in particular went through massive upheaval. Later appointed boss of Austrade, Ralph Evans took that entrepreneurial mindset to turn on its head Australia's insular approach to trade at that time, enabling local companies and industries to look outward to exploit the potentially much bigger profits offered by lucrative overseas markets. More recently, after years advising and building strategy for business based on facts, not opinion, according to Evans, he turned to climate change analysis, shocked by the denial that he says he sees in some sections of the business community. In his new book titled Toast, Ralph Evans has built a business case to try and help the community, along with the sceptics, to understand the facts and the urgency around the Earth's changing climate. Why did you feel driven to write your book, Toast? And what a great title. I run into a lot of people and had contact with a lot of people in my business life who were not accepting that climate change is happening. And it really puzzled me why that would be the case. Of course, there are some powerful people who are in that category as well. And I was struck once by a particular thing. A friend of mine came back from a trip to Africa. He climbed Mount Kilimanjaro, had some photos of it, of the, the peak, Uhuru it's called, and it was all brown dirt. Now, I'd been up there 30 years before, and there was a massive amount of snow and ice up there. There would have been a snow cliff or an ice cliff about 30 metres or 100 feet high, and it's gone. And So that couldn't have just been a particular year the snow had melted that particular year that your friend was there? No, no, it's perpetual. It's glaciated. It's there permanently. It's always been there. So it struck me, this actually struck me forcibly that there is something happening here and I better look into it. So I started to. It took a while to get some momentum, but after a while I, I took a course, Understanding Climate Change Denial, a MOOC, that's a massive online open course given by the University of Queensland, a man called John Cook. It was very good. I found that excellent and, and it opened my eyes quite a bit. I started reading. I decided I'll write a book about it. Now, I must say I wouldn't recommend to 
everybody to write a book because <laughs> if you're not well known, you can't get it published. It's very, very difficult. Mm. Okay. Well, I mean, on that, you weren't a climate scientist by training. You're a business consultant and advisor. You have been in the venture capital space, but you didn't have the real specialist expertise. Is that, do you think that was hampering the efforts to get it published, even though you'd done a lot of research? I do have a chemical engineering degree, so I could read the the science and make some sense out of it. And I could tell what seemed to be reasonable and what seemed to be bogus. So, no, that was not a problem. I decided to interview people who I thought were likely deniers or obvious ones and find out what they were thinking. Same time, I read a lot, did a lot of reading research to see what the academics were saying about this. And that led to this book. Yeah. So, I mean, in a sense, you, as I say, you've spent much of your career as a business consultant and advisor to business and to government about what is the best path forward or what you should do here with this problem, what is best practice. Did you feel in a way you needed to analyse what's happening with climate change and build a case that you present in Toast? Yes, indeed. Yes. So I looked into whether the the story from the scientists is to be trusted because the strange thing here is people trust experts on the whole. We trust a, a surgeon or a pilot, various experts, where we put our lives in their hands, but people seem not to trust climate scientists. I couldn't find any reason not to trust them. In fact, there was pretty good evidence that you should. So you felt there was a very compelling case that the climate is changing a lot of that is man-made and we need to act and act fast to mitigate against that change. That's right, Helen. I mean, it's all around us. Even though it happens at a slow pace by human standards, it's a very, very fast pace by geological standards, and we get instances like the bushfire calamity of last year, it was just a terrible thing. And climate change was a causative factor behind that. It's interesting because it, to me, it's in layman's language. You're a very knowledgeable person, but you know you have put it into language that everyone can understand to try and explain or persuade some business leaders as much as the general community, politicians, about how the climate is changing and to analyse, are we doing enough? So what do you basically conclude? No, we're not doing enough. I think the world's on a course to somewhat over three degrees of warming above the pre-industrial level by the end of the century. And that's calamitous in its uh, outcome. And it could break out if there are some positive feedback loops that take effect that's been pointed out by scientists like Will Steffen. They could be much worse than that. So we're way short as a, a whole globe of reaching the Paris Agreement goals of no more than two degrees and preferably no more than 1.5. People think they may be failing to believe the science, and you say there are genuine reasons for people why people might be doing that. When the sea level rise at Fort Denison in Sydney is 6.5 centimetres over a century, many people also think, oh, well, that's not much. No, that's quite true. And it is too slow for our brains as they've evolved to register an alarm. There've been some psychologists who've pointed that out, that it's too slow. Our human brain is 
very well attuned to spotting a, an immediate threat came from ancient times. It might have been another tribe going to kill us or a wild animal. We can see things that are immediate threats, but we don't see slow and abstract threats very easily. In addition, the the sky is big. You know, It looks enormous when you look up. It looks as if the atmosphere is more or less infinite. But if you look at the photos from space, it's actually very thin. And we have, as a humanity, been able to change the composition of the air and put more greenhouse gases into it, measurably more, over a short period of time. And so that essentially is what is warming the oceans in particular and the Earth? Yes, that's right. It traps part of the sun's energy that comes into the Earth and stops it leaving back into space again and warms up the globe a little bit. Now, some of this is natural and has always been there. If it weren't for some greenhouse effect, the Earth would be a lot colder, about 30 or I think 33 degrees colder than it actually is. It would be much less inhabitable than it is. So that has been stable for aeons, for hundreds of thousands of years, during which we've all evolved, but now it's heating up dangerously. It is interesting, Ralph, because in Australia, I mean, insurers in particular, insurance companies, many electricity and power companies, even some of the large mining companies, have actually been pushing for climate change mitigation policies for at least 15 years, some of them. Why haven't they been able to build a case with the scientists to say, this is what we need to do and convince some in politics and in the community? There are several factors. One is that there is a lot of disinformation around. There are a lot of people putting out stuff that is just not true, saying that climate change is not happening. It began in, in, in America with the American Petroleum Institute and others, and the Coke Industries is a notorious company, a big privately owned company in the uh, fossil fuels and chemicals space. And its two owners, two brothers, committed a lot of money to putting out propaganda that said climate change is not true, and they liked the minimum of regulation. I mean, you and others argue that we must not only reduce our current emissions, but that we actually have to drag some of the emissions out of the atmosphere and do something with them. Now, the evidence for how we do that effectively, it's not there yet, is it? That's the tough part. Currently, there's a lot of talk about net zero emissions by 2050. Many countries have adopted that as a goal, and all Australian states and territories have, but not the Commonwealth. China has said it'll be climate carbon neutral by 2060. I wouldn't be surprised if they bring that forward to 2050 to line up with the others once Biden is installed as president and they don't have to cope with Trump. But another- sorry, Ralph, just on that, I mean, Australian politicians, certainly of, of one stripe, do say China's one of the biggest emitters. They're still burning lots of coal. You know, can we believe what they say that they're committed really to mitigation policies against climate change? Well, the way the Paris Agreement works is each country makes its own contribution, makes its own statement of what it's going to do. There is no global body that says, you Australia, you've got this. to do X and right. China, you've got to do Y. China set its, they're called nationally determined contributions, and it is well on the way to achieving it. For China, it's very important that for the stability of the country and the, the regime, that it continue to grow and get richer, because that's really been the, 
the promise to the Chinese people in exchange for there only being one party and they'd argue with it. They are well on track to achieving their lower intensity of carbon in the economy. The percentages have gone down drastically to bringing up a significant proportion of non-fossil fuel energy. They're the biggest installer of solar and wind in the world. And I think they're actually fulfilling what they said they'd do. And I would expect them to do so again. Big conference coming up in November next year in Glasgow, at which all of the countries get together and present what they have been doing, how they've achieved their nationally determined contributions. And the thing is designed to bring peer pressure onto people to ramp up their commitments. I would think it's highly likely that if America is once more on board with Paris and not trying to undermine it, China will tighten its emissions. It's got good reason to do so. You know their air pollution is shocking and causes serious health difficulties. They have quite a few areas along their coasts, including Shanghai, parts of the Pearl River Delta, that are threatened by sea level rise, not that they're going to be inundated permanently, but that when storms come along, they'll have big damage, uh, as happened in New York, for instance, a few years ago. And all of their water supply, all of the major rivers of China come from the Tibetan Plateau and the Himalayas. And the snow and ice, like the snow and ice on Mount Kilimanjaro, is shrinking there and the water supply is threatened. So they've got good reason to want to bring global climate change under control. To get to net zero, there will still be some emissions. There'll be some coal-fired power stations. There'll be some industries like steel and cement that will continue to make a lot of emissions. Not all of the cars will be electric by 2030 or by 2050. Yeah, There'll be trains and planes and so forth. So there will be some emissions. So to get to net zero, you have to take some greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere. How do you do that? Well, one way you can do it is by growing more trees. And New Zealand has a net zero plan, and it involves big planting of forests as one of the factors. But to do that sufficiently, you have to plant the area of medium-sized countries, mm. and that's going to compete with other land use, grazing and, and farming. There are experiments to take carbon dioxide out of the air and just sequester it under the ground, but it's very expensive. There's one in Switzerland called Climeworks. It does work but it's very expensive. Getting that down to a reasonable cost is a big challenge. Just the title, toast, it's a great term, but it is very ominous. Yes. It, it is a, a pessimistic title. It comes from, you've mentioned that I've had some experience in venture capital. It comes from a term used about businesses that aren't doing too well and get maybe overtaken by somebody else and they're toast. So it is ominous. We are on a, a course now for over three degrees of warming and it will be very destructive for this country and very destructive for many other countries. There have been what you might call political games being played in Australia over quite a long period of time. Well, really since 2007. Yes, yes. I think Tony Abbott particularly fought Gillard on this as a subject. It was all a good game. And even currently, I think the government has been effective at 
wedging the Labor Party on this issue. But look, it's time this we put this aside because this is actually too important. Our children, grandchildren are going to have to live in this country long after we've gone and in the world, and things need to be done. We need to get serious. Ralph, that's almost, Toast is really almost your latest business case for doing something for uh, against climate change. But let's take a step right back. Can you tell us about you and a few of your partners started up a boutique management consultancy firm, Pappas Carter, Evans and Coop, in what, 1979? You were a startup and you took on one of the world majors and a worldwide competitor, McKinsey & Co. Well, the business was much smaller than these days. It's a very large activity now in Australia, management consulting, but it was really much smaller. And you said boutique. The people we were competing with were probably boutique as well at that really? time in okay. this country, in yeah. this country, in, in any case. And we four believed that we could, by by focusing in a particular part of the, the market, which we knew reasonably well, we could do very well. So we gave it a go and it worked out. So what was that particular part of the market that you felt and what did you offer? We offered business strategy analysis and recommendations. We didn't try to reorganize things. We didn't try to do work on company systems or anything like that. We focused on business strategy, on how company A will compete with B and C in the same market and lock in better profitability for the long term. It involved some quite detailed analysis, quantitative analysis. So you would look at how your client's product went to the market and the volumes and the costs of the different stages in taking it to the market and build a model comparing a competitor. Say, well, look, because they're bringing it from there, because they're distributing it in this way, and they're spending this on their branding, their costs must be this, or you'd estimate what they are and yours are that. And if you manipulate this in some way or other, you can probably build in a sustainable advantage compared to the other guys. And that worked, didn't matter whether you were in mining, brewing, distributing tires, all sorts of things. So how did you four come together? So just, it was George Pappas, Colin Carter, Maury Coop, Ralph Evans. How did you know these guys? How did you come together? Colin and George had been together in the same class at Harvard Business School. George went to the Boston Consulting Group and worked with them in Japan and the US. And he wanted to return to Australia with his wife and young children. He wasn't enjoying being having young children in Japan. It was they wanted to be back home. Colin had remained a very good friend of his. I had met him years before when we both competed for a scholarship to take us to America to business school. And I remember thinking, he's the one to beat. Yeah, it's going to be difficult. <laughs> this and is Colin or George? George. George. And he <sighs> said later he thought some, something the same, and the quiet guy over in the corner got it. So there we are. <laughs> you both missed out at that <laughs> but, stage. <laughs> well, we, did, we managed other ways. Colin, Murray, and I worked together for McKinsey for, for quite some time, so we knew each other quite well, and we're at a similar stage in development in, in our careers. So when... George decided to 
come back to Australia and strike out on his own with the blessing of his old friends at the Boston Consulting Group. He and Colin teamed up, and then a few months later, Maury and I said, we'll go and do the same. We'll make a Sydney end to their Melbourne-based practice. Right. So really, you could say you were, the four of you were kind of refugees, to use that term, out of the big, well, they weren't big at that stage, but the more established management consultancy groups. Why did you think you guys could do a better job than them? Well, as I mentioned, we focused more narrowly and we didn't want to take on many of the things that McKinsey did very well. I think we did have some technology that came from frameworks, if you like, that came from the Boston Consulting Group. If I could link back to what we were discussing before, they've appeared just recently in public. Everybody's noticed how the cost of solar energy, cost of wind power, and the cost of batteries are falling. They're falling in a very predictable manner, which you can plot on a graph. If you put the cumulative production of something and the unit costs in real terms of that product, you often get a straight line. And that's been the case with all those three things. The Boston Consulting Group used that methodology to advise many manufacturing companies in America and elsewhere on how to, how to get the advantage over the competitors. So what, you were in your early 30s and yes. you struck out on your own? Yes. Why did you, when you think back on it now, did you put a lot of thought into, gosh, I'm actually backing myself, I'm becoming an entrepreneur, or was it just, I've gone as far as I can go at McKinsey, I want to do this for myself? Well, I've never thought of myself as an entrepreneur in the sense of Twiggy Forrest or somebody who might say, I feel like starting a business, what will it be? It was more that he was a a door opening, an opportunity to work with these people I liked, and we have a culture that we developed ourselves that we, we thought would be favourable and would work well for the other people we employed later as well. So it was a question really of a door opening and thinking, look, that's a good opportunity, let's do it. But it's interesting because, I mean, you could have stayed on and had a very nice, comfortable life as a partner in one of these big management consultants as they were growing. It's not necessarily that comfortable. It's pretty intense. So Less intense than it would have been starting your own business from scratch? No, perhaps comparable. But look, we had a lot of fun and we made it fun. How did you fund that startup? Really out of a modest amount of money that we had to put into it each ourselves and the ongoing Fees we charged our clients. Yeah, so in many ways it was self-funding, but in the beginning you had to sort of scrimp and save your own money. Was was not, it a bit like that? Not much, but I think if we hadn't got busy pretty quickly, we probably would have had to give the idea up. Yeah. But we did. We stayed busy and after a while we added people and grew. Let's jump to the government. We did a big project in 1989 for the Australian Manufacturing Council. Now, this was the days of the Hawke government, and they had set up a tripartite council with business people, union people, and the government was represented as well. It was John Button that set this up. And with the help of some people that we, we knew from overseas, a Canadian in particular, we did a, a project on how Australian manufacturing could survive better in, a, in a, what was a pretty tough time at that time. Uh, that introduced me to government and the government policies. And so when the 
Austrade opportunity came along, I was attracted to that. But if you go back to the mainstream of the consulting, most of it was commercial companies. I did a lot of work in, in mining, mineral sands, and in gold. And, and if I can just set the scene for a lot of listeners who weren't in business at that time or weren't paying attention, there was a lot of change in Australia in the late 80s and 90s in manufacturing, even in mining, where we, we just got what so much better at doing world's best practice. Yes, that's true, Helen. Ever since the beginning of the 20th century, early in the 20th century, Australian economy had been run with a lot of protection of manufacturing, high tariffs and other regulations, while the exports of, of primary products like wool and meat and grains supported the whole country. By the 1980s, it was realised by economists, one of the most influential in these, and this was Ross Garner, who's appeared more recently, that actually this, this whole idea placed a big burden on the, on the country, that the costs of our running these protected industries were high and actually reverberated on the costs or impacted the costs of our primary industries as well. And we would be better progressively to dismantle the protection regime and let the economy float more. Now, this was very stressful for a lot of people that were in established industries. Textile, clothing and footwear contracted drastically. Steel had a lot of trouble. And so it was a time of enormous change. But I think looking back on it, it was really very beneficial change. It's interesting, though, because we've now, we're now still in the middle of the COVID pandemic. And certainly in the first few months, when perhaps we were looking at not having enough equipment, machines, intubation apparatuses, there was a concern that, oh, we've let all that manufacturing go offshore. Do you think there was a danger or there is still a danger that we let too much fine manufacturing you know, high-tech manufacturing go offshore? It's certainly true that we, we it has shrunk in Australia very drastically. A big step was a few years ago when the car industry closed down. What you say is right, but it's hard to think of the right remedy. I'm sure we need some strategic reserves of things like PPE for in case there'll, there'll, there'll be another pandemic for sure. But whether that means you prop up an industry on a long term – I'm doubtful. That would probably cost a lot and actually hold back the rest of the economy. Can you actually remember your very first client and that feeling that, oh, maybe this is actually going to work? <laughs> maybe we'll do this well? Or did you never have any doubt? Once you get into the analysis of a particular situation and find out what you think is the right answer, the doubt fades away. It becomes more a matter of saying, well, how do we actually explain this? And how do we get it across? And how do we... Very often, you'll find some person who's been in that company for many years and has devoted their whole life to it will say, this is a very complicated industry. It'll take you a very long time to understand it. And you have to be prepared with the question to ask them, why is the price of this product X and not twice X or half X? And often that they don't know the answer to that. And it's put you back onto a situation where you can actually, you know, go forward and don't have the don't have an argument. You have studied or analyzed and advised many businesses and how and why some ideas should work, why some strategies should work beyond another. Is there a pattern to 
why and how things go wrong that you've been able to see? Well, I think the answer to that is a success is always based on strong fundamentals. If you think you can do something and it's going to cost twice as much as your competition, not going to last terribly long. And on the other hand, if you can lock in good costs or if it's a branded business, somehow you can develop a brand that was much stronger than anybody else, it can be sustainable. But if you just think, oh, look, look, that looks good. Let's do it. It may not work. For instance, right now, there's a lot of interest in hydrogen. Now, it may play a part in the energy system. I think it will play a part in the energy system of the future, but perhaps not in all the places that people are talking about. For instance, hydrogen-powered cars are pretty unlikely to be cost-competitive with battery-powered battery powered ones where they get the electricity from the main system. So I think people get a bit of a rush of blood to the head occasionally. Ralph, let's have a look at, I mean, your management consultancy was so successful. Can you give us a picture of that success back then in the 80s? Well, I wasn't solely responsible. In fact, probably played less a part than some of the my other partners. They were probably better salesmen and that sort of thing than I ever was. But uh, look, it was a firm that was had a great buzz about it. It was growing. It felt positive. We tried to keep a a good culture within it, try not to be unfair or, or treat people poorly. Always had a little interest in social aspects of what we were doing. And I've learned since, long since I've left, they've maintained a long partnership with the Indigenous people from North Queensland, from Cape York. And those sorts of things motivate people well. People like doing them and they give more meaning to your life as a professional if you can do some things that are socially useful rather than just helping somebody sell 10% more widgets. Well, you're probably being a little bit humble, but it was sort of so successful that the Boston Consulting Group came knocking in 1990, if I've got that right. You merged with them, and that was really when BCG, Boston Consulting Group, came to Australia and New Zealand through you, through Pappas Carter, Evans and Coop, didn't they? That's right. They acquired our offices and incorporated us, yes. And we had, by that time, an office in Auckland as well, as Sydney and Melbourne. So they hadn't had a presence in Australia up to that time. You no. were there. You became their presence. No, that's right. No, they had, I think they told George when he left them that they had bigger priorities in European countries, America and Japan. So why merge with them? It was a culture that was highly compatible. And for that, I have to credit George Pappas in particular, who who had was an alumnus of the Boston Consulting Group, Later became, after rejoining, he became a senior vice president. So we talked to some other firms and we were very happy with the nature of this firm. It was going to fit well. It wasn't going to be an upheaval. If I can take your mind back to that time, though, because often founders, and and you were pretty much a founder of that company, it's hard to know, you know, when should we sell out or how do we sell out? You'd only been going by my calculation for 11 years. That's not a hugely long time. Were you happy to go 
Was it price-driven or did you think we can actually do more inside BCG? Yeah, it was the latter. The business was growing, but we were finding the whole field was growing. We were finding ourselves more in competition, more than ever, with international firms who would bring teams in and out of Australia from other countries, and it was hard to compete with that. Best thing was to join it. So I guess you felt you'd gone as far as you could just as Pappas Carter, Evans and Coop. You needed to get some real heft and that international sort of heft. In one of our long meetings about, and when we thought about our own business, which we, we discussed a lot, we came to the conclusion that it was a good time to to do something like that, yes. And did all you four partners, plus a few more that you'd gathered along the way, did you all stay with BCG for a while or how was the merger? It was very good. I stayed for a year, not very long, the least of, of all of them. There were stories that the people in America said the Australians had taken them over rather than the other way around <laughs> because uh, particularly Colin and George were very active in their international activities. So it was a very successful merger. It worked very well. So why did you leave? The Austrade opportunity came along, Barry Headhunter. I'd been exposed to government through this work we had done on industry policy. And I thought that sounded interesting. It sounded like a challenge I could take on. And it was just a, a new part of life for me. Yeah. Uh, we will talk about Austrade in a moment. But I mean, some of the strategies that you put into place and, and some of the deals that I guess you helped implement, tell us about some that really led to great results, either for you or for the group. We did a, a lot of work for a company that was never unknown in Australia at that time called Lion in New Zealand. And it became Lion Nathan, now it's Lion again, and it became a large company in Australia as well. And it had a, a CEO who was very or a, who was a very dynamic individual. He also owned a big chunk of the company. He's now died sadly, Sir Douglas Myers. So we worked with him for a long time helping build that company. And we worked in the early days in the formation of Macquarie Bank. That's grown into wow with a David real major. Clark. You mean as he yeah. was trying to work out his strategy to with grow with David Clark and, and Tony Berg yeah. in the early days. Yes. What would you say you were responsible for inside that great millionaires' factory, <laughs> as it was known? Or how did you help them? Do you think? No. Well, it was a, it was a long time ago, and it was a much much smaller organisation than it is now. But we helped them with the strategic moves they were making at that particular time with whether the bank license is a good idea and what should go in the application for it. I think that's probably about enough. I mean, they, they made their own decisions, but we helped, we were sounding board for them and helped make some recommendations. Yeah. Ralph, you were also involved in the management buyout of Orlando Wines in 1988 can, and 1989. Can you tell us that story? Yes, okay. I came across that through a, a, a friend of mine who was a investment banker, Steve Higgs, and he was working on this deal. Record and Coleman, well-known international company, British company that made soap and mustard, had only one business in the alcoholic beverages in the world, and they had some sort of review that went on, possibly some consultants there, I don't know, in the UK that said, look, this one, it, we just don't understand why you've got it. It's a this bit was of, Orlando Wines. Yes. 
owned by Reckitt and Coleman. That was the yeah. only alcoholic company they had, and yes. it was Little Orlando Wines in Australia. Well, it wasn't that little. It was quite a good business. So they decided to to sell it as a, a management buyout, and that was done. And Steve put together a board, and I put what I could into some equity. I didn't have much money at the time, but it, that did quite nicely. And I was sat on the board for a couple of years, and the business went very well under its independent management, and it was eventually acquired by Pernod Ricard, a French alcohol company. So you went with the the internal managers at Orlando who bought it from Reckitt and Coleman. Yes. And you say you put a little bit of of money in. Was that, I mean, again, what was your thinking? Did you think, this is a great opportunity. I'd love to be part of this. Yes. It was an early instance in Australia of a leveraged buyout where there was a a business owned by a large company that wasn't a, a clear fit for that company and it decided to sell it off. People bought it, did so with a lot of debt. But the business had sufficient cash flow and margins that it could actually pay for that debt and survive and become more profitable and eventually be sold. And the equity part of it does quite well if you manage one of those things well. Right. So you took some equity in the beginning with the management when they bought it out. A small amount, yes. So then did they, they onsold it to Pernod Ricard and you all did well, presumably, but was part of that, that wasn't exactly part of Pappas Carter, Evans and Coop, wasn't it? No, Tell it us- wasn't. I was allowed a little bit of extracurricular activity. We did have an investment business before the merger with Boston Consulting Group. We had been allowed ourselves to be acquired by what was called a cash box, a company that had a little bit of money to invest in businesses. It's called Byron Holdings. I named our dog Byron, which caused some consternation among my partners. They didn't <laughs> like that very much. It was just a shelf company name. And it did some investment in things. I tried to interest them in the- You tried to interest- Byron Holdings, my partners, yes. in the Orlando business, but they couldn't see how it was going to work well. Anyway, I disagreed on that, but I thought, yes, I think it will. And I really got a lot of confidence. Chris Roberts was the CEO and and Steve Higgs and others that were on the board. I thought it was going to work. So I took my chances with it and it did work. So George Pappas and Colin Carter and Maury Coop did not think that this was a, a good enough opportunity for them. Well, they had other things they wanted to do. And when Boston Consulting came along, they said, we like you, but we don't like this little investment firm you've got. So wind it down, sell it off, and we'll buy the consulting firm, which they did. Okay. So you actually backed your own judgment and said, I'm going to go in with the people with Orlando Wines. Yes. And it was fun too. I bet it was. So how was that? I mean, did you feel that that was part of the ethos of Pappas Carter, Evans and Coop? You're all highly skilled and that's okay if they don't want to be part of it. I'm going to do this. They've given me the blessing, did they? Yeah, yes. It didn't conflict with anything that they were doing. It didn't intrude on my, I was just a, a board member. It didn't intrude on my time that much. I mean, I could continue with what I was doing. Yeah, so in a sense, you became an entrepreneur yet again. Not that you had a management role in Orlando, but you could see the possibilities of backing this idea. Of course, yes. Orlando had Jacobs Creek. 
Yes, absolutely. Do you want to explain to listeners who might not know what Jacobs Creek was like back then? Well, it was already the largest branded, I think you call it low-end premium wine. That was, it wasn't a cheap wine that comes in a bag and box, but it was priced quite moderately globally. And they had good sales already established in the UK, and that expanded, and the Panorica people have taken it a long way further since, and I think they've shifted it further up the market. But it was a successful brand. They had several others as well. So the wine business run by Chris Roberts was run very successfully. So uh, did you consider yourself an entrepreneur at that stage? Not really. I consider myself somebody who saw an opportunity and took it, that's all. Yeah, so is that what you think? is really at the basis of what an entrepreneur is and how they need to think? Ah, uh, well, look, it's, it's suited me, whether it will suit everybody. I think somebody like Elon Musk or, or Twiggy Forrest, who are real entrepreneurs, would find that a bit dull and, and unadventurous. So they tend Well, they'd like control and they'd like to run it and that sort of thing, whereas you weren't in the management group no, of Orlando. You know, somebody like Musk, he, he made his money in PayPal for a start and then he started with electric cars and was very aggressive, starting a very clever strategy from the top end, moving on down, then batteries and then rockets. His rocket went up a couple of days ago with four astronauts on board. Fantastic success. Another company he started, supposed to lower the cost of tunneling under cities. Now, that's gone quiet. We haven't heard from that. Maybe they haven't found a way. They made the rockets cheaper by landing the rocket again and reusing it. Terrific idea, and they managed to make it work. In a smaller way, you backed yourself. You backed your own judgment. Yes, that's right. Why do you think you did that? I was confident. I've been spending more than a decade at analyzing where businesses are positioned in their markets and how they were competing with whoever they were competing with. And I thought I, I knew a lot about what would make one work and what would not. So I was confident that this was a good one. And I had confidence in the management as well. When you became, were appointed Managing Director of Austrade, that was now by the early 90s, you had obviously come from private enterprise and from being this business advisor and consultant on what to do to maximise opportunities. Did you bring a much more commercial bent, sort of an entrepreneurial bent to promote Australian trade? I believe so, and I certainly tried to to release a lot of that in the individual people that were working in the organization. Look, this was a this was an organization that had some wonderful people in it, but it had been run quite badly or it had run in a way that hadn't succeeded and it had a poor reputation. And a big review had been done by McKinsey. And they did a good job, I think. I was a competitor of them at the time, but I must say I think they did a good job on this. Not the sort of thing that we at PCEK or Boston Consultant Group ever tried to do, but they suggested or recommended it should be restructured in certain ways. There should be senior people posted to each of the, what, six parts of the world who would have a lot of authority to run activities in their parts of the world. Anyway, my job really was to implement that and get it to happen and try to lead the people who were there into this bold new world 
And fortunately, it was well-conceived and designed, and it did work pretty well. And we had very good support from government. So it was, it was a great period. I really had a lot of fun with that. At the same time, of course, we are dealing with an interesting part of Australian business, the companies that are going offshore, that are trying to establish themselves in China or in in other markets. It was a huge time, really, for Australia to become much more outward-looking. The 80s, we'd seen, obviously, a lot of this restructuring, and then, you know, the 80s and the 90s was all about, oh, exports and trade and think offshore, and that our market wasn't big enough to sustain all our companies. Was that part of the culture that you were working within? Absolutely, yes. It was an exciting time. And it was our job to seize the excitement of the time and stimulate it and attract more companies to go and try to do something in Indonesia or in in China or Malaysia or many of the other countries. So it was terrific. You've also been very heavily involved with venture capital funds. Now, that in one way, that's quite different to management consultancy, but in another way, it's looking at opportunities and seizing them and saying, who do we back? What did you think you brought to venture capital funds? I know you weren't again in the actual funds distribution or who they were going to back, but what skills do you think you brought to that? Well, I was really working with a group called Allen and Buckridge and Roger Allen, whom I knew through being the deputy chairman of Austrade, and Roger Buckridge being a consultant at McKinsey, so I knew them both. He he had some time in venture capital in between times. They were the people that really were the, the judges of whether a particular business should be backed with their funds. We had $250 million of, of money that had come from institutions and from individuals. And my job was much more to look over the governance and make sure the boards that were running on behalf of the investors were doing the job properly and help make sure that we had a proper process deciding whether we're going to invest in something or not, if we're going to back it further or not. And it was a very, very dynamic business. It was a bit like some of the things I'd experienced in Austrade, where you get entrepreneurial businesses, not necessarily big, that going for big opportunities and hoping to grow enormous very quickly. So in a sense, that must have been one of the early VC companies in Australia. And of course, yes. now there's a lot more Airtree and Blackbird, and they've had enormous successes with some of our great companies, new startup type of companies. But in your view, is VC the right way to go? I mean, it doesn't suit all startups, does it? Because the VC fund wants ownership, you know, some ownership. So oh. the startup loses some control. Yeah, they're, they're, it's a very tough business. The startup loses a lot of control. The people that put money in through venture capital want to exercise, want to make sure their money is going to multiply. And they're highly driven and they have investors behind them who want a big result. So, look, it works for a particular class of business where your ambitions to grow are, are very, very fast, where you're going to add value, the business become more valuable while it's probably not making profit. So it's not suitable to take to the stock market, for instance, which would want you to be profitable. That would be better suited to probably slightly slower growing. Businesses are profitable immediately or in the early stages. But this is a has been a wonderful way for a certain class of business to grow very rapidly and take on the world. 
Very often they have to move to a bigger country, most commonly America, not always, to achieve their their fulfilment. But the VC company will help them do that. You're a, a trained chemical engineer. That that was your original degree. Then you ended up going to Stanford University and doing a Masters of Business Administration. Why did you do that? Why did you feel you needed to get an MBA and what value was it? I, I was probably not an ideal fit for a chemical engineer. I was a bit of a square peg in a round hole. And that makes me want to comment about something that's happening at the present time. There's a lot of emphasis from the government in job-ready degrees, and that was one. But it turned out not really to suit me terribly well. When I graduated and got a job, I didn't like the job very much. If I'm saying I'm not really an entrepreneur, what I am is somebody that has gone through a number of doors that have opened at different times and had to adapt. I think that's probably something we need to think about for education. What you need, I think, what a lot of people need is not a degree that will put them straight into a job that they plug away at for the rest of their life so much as the ability to be flexible and to understand, to probe into a situation, to understand it, to form conclusions, to form a strategy, if you like, or a pathway that they can follow. And that may be in just about any field. I'd like to cite an example. I have a nephew. I had to talk about this. He's 20 years younger than me. When he was leaving school and going to university, what am I going to do? He, a bit like me, was a bit of a generalist, I think. Didn't have an obvious leaning to one thing or another. Anyway, I said, my point of view, do whatever you like there, but do it as well as you can and something will emerge. Well, now he's a very successful executive with Google. At the time of that conversation, not only did Google not exist, the internet, if it existed, it was in its earliest rudimentary form. So I think that's going to happen more in the future as the pace of technology, technological change revs up. We're going to need more flexibility and ability to adapt from one circumstance in in a professional life to another. What did Stanford give you that you've perhaps used in your later careers? A great deal, actually. It was a very, it's actually quite a generalized degree in MBA. You learn a lot of skills that are relevant to being in a business, but some are in finance, some are in economics or business strategy, some are in how things operate, operations management, some are in the psychology and the handling of the people. And these things, I think, were very good at equipping you. First of all, when I first went off as a junior member of a management consulting firm, to be an analyst, to just analyze things and crunch the numbers. Ralph, what do you think you learned at McKinsey that you took with you into other businesses? Well, they're very good at rigorous analysis, and they're unusually good at taking things apart and analyzing the kinds of things that you need to delve into to work out how business works, that you have facts to bolster your your argument, whatever it is. It's not just based on opinion, it's based on facts. Facts are much stronger than opinion. In 2020, you were awarded an AO, an Order of Australia, for services to international trade, to venture capital, to business. That must have been a very proud moment. It certainly was. It was wonderful. I'm really looking forward to the investiture, which is next week. It was delayed by COVID, so it's next week. 
No, I'm sure it reflected mainly the time I spent at Austrade when my job was to carry out some very big reforms and get it working better. And that worked pretty well. I don't know what else went into whoever made recommendations that this would happen, but somebody did, and that's very nice of them, and I appreciate it. Just on Austrade, what do you think were the markers of success that you did achieve there? We aimed from the beginning to get off the front pages and into the business pages of the papers, and I think that actually did happen. What do you mean? No scandals, no accusations that this thing is poorly managed, which appear in the early pages of the paper. And let's be mentioned in the in the business pages where they're talking about what some company is doing in Saudi Arabia or in China. I'm asking a lot of my guests these next few questions, and they can be short, shortish answers if you'd like. What's the biggest thing you've learned on your career journey? <laughs> That's a tough one, Helen, of course. Look, everybody, I think, has good moments and less good moments, and you have to be able to pick yourself up and keep going. What are you obsessed about at the moment? And that could be a book or a film or, a, or an issue. Well, now's the time when Zali Stegall's bill is coming up to Parliament for the climate change bill. I think that's a wonderful thing. It's a good thing. I hope that the government and members of Parliament will stop just playing political games, trying to wedge each other, that sort of thing, and realise that this is a terribly important for future generations and we need to, to act. That's something I'd very much like to see. It's based on a UK bill. So it calls for there being, I think, budgets over five years, five-year rolling periods for investment and for emissions reduction and approaching the net zero by 2050 target. So it involves getting there and having a, a plan for getting there, as, for instance, New Zealand has developed. Is there something you would say to younger people who might say, I have an idea or I want to do something, I want to back myself, how do I do it? What do you say to people who want to do that? Well, have they got the resources to do it? If they have, they might just be able to go right out and do it and see. And if it succeeds, great. If it doesn't, well, it doesn't. And they have to then think of something else. Failure in, in starting something is not one of the things that I think has changed. It used to be seen as as a terrible badge of incompetence. Silicon Valley is full of people that have failed once and picked themselves up and, and done well subsequently. And having been a part of something that has not succeeded is often seen as a plus because of the experience. So you would say to people, not only have you got to, I guess, have passion and perseverance, but you have to have this idea that failure is not a bad thing. That's right. But that doesn't mean that you take on something dumb, you know, you don't You've got to do the homework and make sure that it's it's well thought out or it, you know, it's much more likely to fail. Ralph Evans, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you. Thanks for joining me on Build It, They'll Come. Thank you, Helen. I've enjoyed it. I hope you enjoyed Build It, They'll Come. Let me know via Twitter at Helen underscore Daly. 
Better still, let your family, friends and colleagues know. Share it around your networks and I'd love you to give it a star rating to make it easier for others to find us. Be sure to subscribe as there are plenty of upcoming episodes you don't want to miss with more amazing innovators and entrepreneurs on how they turned their light bulb idea into an empire.